Hello there and welcome to Racehorse Movies, the show where two film fans take a racing sheet from last week, pick a random horse name for each other and from that name pitch a movie. In the pitch, to flesh out our movie ideas, we may include such things as stars, directors, composers, best boys and stable boys. Maybe not that last one. Hoping none of our ideas have to be put behind a screen and shot. The sky's the limit, the horses are on the starting line, the jockeys are frothing. It's time for Racehorse Movies. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to Racehorse Movies. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome you. Uh, I am, of course, Luke Searle, and I am joined by my wonderful friend, uh, Graham Thomas. Graham, say hello to everyone. Hello to everyone. Lovely. And today we have a couple of pitches. So we're changing it up after last week where we pitched uh, two mm. pitches for one horse. We are back to our usual routine of uh, one horse per pitch. And we will be pitching mm -hmm. those two ideas to each other. Uh, coming up now, man. I'm very looking forward to it, Graham. It's going to be excellent. Oh, it's going to be good. Is it coming up now or do you want to just say a little bit about what you've been up to? Because I haven't spoken to you for a while and before we just dive straight into horses, I want to know how you are. I can only apologise, Graham. My jets, uh, if they were a temperature, would be hot right now. Uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to try and dial that back to like a, a simmer, <laughs> a simmer maybe, okay? If you could. I yeah. was going to come in with a Mr. Freeze kind of quip about cooling your jets. <laughs> no! Uh, <laughs> I saw the, I saw the Arnie documentary actually. I did also did see, see that? that. Yes, I did. It man. was really good. Oh, Goodness me, really man! Good. Like I know, like I'm sure he's done uh, some bad things mm. and everything. But like I, I love him incredibly. Like he made such an Im mummy baby bird imprint on me when I was young, watching his <laughs> movies. That uh, yeah. I feel real, uh, quite strong emotions seeing uh, his life uh, sort of uh, play yes. out in front of me, man. I yeah. thought it was quite excellent. Yeah, me too. I was shocked at how still similar to you that he had an imprint on mm -hmm. me when I was young. Um, I was shocked today how he could still kind of school me or teach me stuff like I remember when I was watching that episode I was struck by that idea of being useful stay busy stay useful absolutely funny enough I was watch I watched that documentary I was on holiday in Sardinia for a few days when that, when that came out yeah and I was there and I turned off all my alarms I didn't do any work and I did nothing at all. I just went to the beach and hung out. And for the, I was there for five days. And for the first two days, I was really discombobulated. I didn't know what I'd do. I wasn't quite enjoying myself. I didn't know what to do. And watching that just made me realise it's because I wasn't being useful. Yeah. You know, I wasn't doing something. And I think... That just really resonated with me. So he's still teaching. Yeah, no, I, that me. really struck me as well because I have a pretend, propensity uh, to uh, probably not make myself as useful as I could um, sometimes. Mm. And that really doesn't feel good. It really doesn't. And it can get quite insidious, actually. Uh, and it was a very, very powerful, simple, clean message. And it's yeah. not. And he, he didn't deliver it in a uh, stay busy so you can avoid everything that is uh, bad in your life or anything like that. <laughs> yes. It's just yeah, the yeah. instant gratification you get from the busyness and being useful um, helps to balance yeah. that out, I think, maybe. Let's let's go back to that pool we dipped our toes in a few minutes ago, man. Mm -hmm. have, have you got through anything? Have you, you've been quite busy, so I'm not expecting a big old watch list, but uh, have you got um, anything that you've watched? Yeah, I have been quite busy. Uh, I've seen a few. I haven't been to the cinema for quite a while, but when I did a couple of weeks ago, I saw a really, really beautiful film that I thoroughly recommend to everybody. Uh, it's called Eight Mountains, or The Eight Mountains, Otto Matania. It's an Italian movie set in the... 80s and 90s, probably maybe late 70s, up until the 90s, mm -hmm. I think. I could be wrong. Anyway, it's about a, a young boy who lives in Turin who summers in the mountains. 
And every summer he goes there and he strikes up a really close relationship with a boy who lives in that region, in that area up in the mountains. Yeah. His yeah, father yeah. is a, a mountain man. His uncle has a, a farm up there. And these, um, this pair like, spend all their summers together and they strike up a very, very strong bond. And due to circumstances, uh, they don't see each other anymore. Their, their families have their respective families have an argument, and the boy, one boy gets taken away from the other, and they just kind of fall out of out of touch with each other as life goes on. And then when they're in their thirties, due to again circumstances uh, or life happening mm-hmm. to one of them, they find each other again on on the mountain and to reconnect with each other and find their lost youth and work through things that they're going on in their life and make sense of the world around them. They decide to build or renovate this shack that's right at the top of a mountain. So they spend all summer there uh, rebuilding it and making it a place uh, for them and their friends and their family so that every winter or every summer from mm-hmm. there on in, they all have this sanctuary, this place that they've built with their own oh, hands. Wow, that sounds and it's such very a, beautiful. It's such a beautiful, it's beautiful. It's such a lovely um, uh, treatise on friendship and mm-hmm. life and change. And it's incredibly well shot. It's beautifully acted. It's very, very tender. And yet I was just crying like a baby throughout pretty much, which is a good sign, I think. Ah, uh, uh, like 3,000%, man. Like, yeah, if I'm weeping mm. at the end like I did with a sort of Tree of Life or The Rider mm. or something like that, oh, then, God. yeah, like yeah. That, 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 that's a very cathartic... It's done its job. Yeah, and I'm sure I shouldn't be looking to movies to release all of my tears. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a dark room <laughs> where nobody's looking at you. <laughs> it's so beautiful. <laughs> Going on, going to the cinema with a Wookiee <laughs> cry, <laughs> crying next to it, so it, it masks your cries. <laughs> you weep into its furry arms. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that would be my, my pick, my recommendation. It was wonderful. I highly recommend it. Please check it out. The Eight Mountains. The Eight Mountains. Thank you so much. A beautiful description, and You're thank welcome. you very much for the heads up. I hadn't heard of that previously, so I will definitely be looking at that, man. It would be nice to uh, check something, yeah, like you say, a little bit different out. So what have you been watching, speaking of lovely movies? Well, uh, so uh, just a very quick TV, because it has taken up a lot of my eye time, um, mm-hmm. and that is Succession. I've been finishing, uh, oh, nice. well, catching up with season four and finishing it off with my brother, uh, which has been, uh, it's 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 incredible. Uh, I, everyone says it's incredible. My voice added to that chorus will do nout, um, but I'm just <laughs> oh, no, saying don't, it don't to... Don't do yourself uh, down, man. You carry weight. Oh, you, carry, you carry gravitas. You carry authority. That's true. Yes, there we go. I get a boom. Um, well, no, it's wonderful. Mm. It really is. It's it's an absolutely incredible show. Uh, the consistency of it, uh, how it, it, there's been no dips. Um, it all feels like one, all four seasons coming to a close uh, with the, with the tenth episode of season four. All four seasons feel like one big. Uh, novel or something like that. Mm. You're kind of going towards your mad men. It's very... I feel like I've consumed one whole story. I'm not getting it delivered to me in sort of uh, uh, seasons that are jumping around in times or anything like that. It's all very much follows uh, follows the narrative in a very tight time right. frame, and that works really well to keep the immediacy, to keep all the emotion up front at all times and all of the dealings and behind the scenes mm-hmm. finaglings and Machiavellian uh, awfulness and psycho- <laughs> psych- sociopathy and all of the things that are on display are just so uh, direct because you're never free from it. You never get a breather from it. And uh, I think that, that works very well as being a metaphor for what it's like to be in that world, making those deals and being that kind of ruthless uh, billionaire that, that, we, mm. that we see. It's, it's a really uh, immediate, thrilling, funny, 
horror, it's almost verging into horror <laughs> in episode uh, series four with some of the things yeah, you have to yeah. witness. It's genuinely frightening um, and uh, incredibly tense for a uh, entire series, which is people flying in jets and talking in rooms, man. It's quite wonderful. Shall we get into some horses? As in pitching horses. I yeah, don't I'm mean not like gonna... in a pantomime kind of way. Or like, yeah, or like, uh, like Leonardo DiCaprio had to do. Uh, I'm not doing any of that kind no, of stuff. No, no. But yeah, I will, I'll happily yeah, uh, interact with you in a pitch uh, condition uh, and Wonderful. get some horses out, man. That sounds like an absolute plan. Okay, so just to remind you and everybody else, the horses that we chose for each other last week were from the 540 at Doncaster. They absolutely were. Who did we choose? I chose for you a horse called She's the Danger. Yes, you absolutely did. And in return, uh, I gave you a horse called Madame Fenella. Who's going first? Do you want to go first or should I go first? Let's go into Madame Fenella. I think we should. Please do. Okay, so Madame Fenella. So we start on the outskirts of Paris around about 1900 and Sophia, a young woman, early 20s, I guess, maybe late teens, very early 20s, arrives at the gates of a nunnery. She knocks on the door and she says, you know, I wish to become a novice. Now, after some very scant research, anyone can, <laughs> anyone can you know... Which is ironic when talking about novices, man. That's perfect. Yes, exactly. That's yeah, like research are. in itself. It's quite meta, isn't it? <laughs> so the, I think the novice is the first uh, tier in your nun career, I guess. Ah, okay. And in order to become and to go through the novitiate, you spend three days um, in obedience as a guest at the convent. You know, just seeing if you like it, and at any time you can leave. You're you're not beholden. And apparently, all levels of nunnery <laughs> are voluntary. Like to step it's, up. To it's nunning. Double. I'm sorry to co- correct you, Graham. It's nunning. It's, it's nunning. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. That's okay. Um, sisters out there. So anyway, uh, Sophia arrives at this uh, nunnery on the outskirts of Paris, 1900, okay. to become a novice, and she's given a tour of the convent by Sister Juanessa. Showing her, you know, this is the dormitory where we sleep, this is the chapel, this is where we pray, blah, 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 blah. And Sophia says, you know, I'd really like to meet the Mother Superior. And uh, Sister Wanessa says, well, unfortunately, Mother Superior has gone missing, but I will be your guide over the next few days. And she sets her around, shows her everything, and then that night, Sophia sneaks around the convent, investigating, seeing stuff, and she sneaks into Mother Superior's room and she's just yeah. looking around, like opening the drawers and seeing stuff. And she, she finds um, a hidden Bible in one of the drawers at the back. Not just a Bible, but a hidden Bible. And she opens it up, and inside the Bible, she finds a stack of flyers for the Grand Guignol okay. Theatre in Paris. And she rifles through these, um, these flyers for this theatre. And the last flyer she comes across is for a new revelation in horror. And it's a play called Madame Fenella. Okay. She's reading the flyer when she hears a noise outside the room and she closes the Bible but pockets the flyer. She puts it in her little, um, whatever they wear. Whatever uh, wimple? Wimple? Wimple. I don't know. I think that's the hat, isn't it? Maybe she's just in a hat. like In her Hessian undergarments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, yeah. Sackcloth, definitely. Sackcloth, yes. Um, so I should roll back. For anyone who's uh, unsure, the Grand 
Guignol was a theatre in Paris that ran from 1867 up into the 60s. And it was kind of a debauched theatre where they would show horrors and comedies. And it was all very kind of rambunctious and wild and very kind debauched, of... Debauched, like completely... Debauched and Was naughty. that on a uh, Moulin Rouge kind of a level? It was a, it was a lot smaller um, and it was a lot more dark. Like They played a lot more horror and they played a lot more kind of titillating things like that. Are we sort of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking the Ande- Antonio Banderas in Interview with a Vampire, mm-hmm. is it a bit like that in that scary theatre that they had? That. I think that's what that's based on. In fact, it might even be the Grand Guignol. Fantastic. Sure. Brilliant. Yeah, that's think- it. That's excellent. I am now placed. That's all you Perfect. need. Thank you. Yes, that's all you need. Um, so she's found this stack of flyers. So the last one is for this new revelation horror, Madame Fidela. And she hears something outside the door, quickly closes the Bible, sneaks out the room and folds up the the flyer and puts it in her pocket. She goes down, follows the noise, and she goes down to the chapel of of this convent. And she hears a knock on the door and the door opens and outside is a cart filled with people right at the end of their tether. They're like mad and raving. And just really like you can imagine, we got like bars on the side, and and is it like we think like Renfield in uh, in in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, Dracula, that kind of a thing? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. They're just lost and lonely, poor people, drinks from the streets, and poor people have been they're the drunks and they're the lunatics, and they and it turns out that they're on their way to the sanatorium as a as a kind of last rite or a last gift, they go to the nunnery where they, they cleanse up. their souls and, yeah. They cleanse their souls and maybe some of them, like, get sober and are released back or whatever it is. But they, they come to this, um, this convent and they, they file them in and Sister Vanessa is there helping them in and then she sees amongst them a, a raving, uh, crazed woman who is actually mm-hmm. the mother superior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the mother superior arrives late and she's taken aside um, while the others are taken to the dormitory. And the mother superior is quizzed privately by Sister Juanessa. Uh, but the mother superior, her eyes are just wild and she's talking in tongues and revelations about what is really out there. And so she's uh, sedated and she's kind of tied down and, and kind of calmed down by Sister yeah. Juanessa. Okay, and then walking through the dormitory of the mad... Um, Sister Vanessa, you know, goes to the chapel to pray privately and Sophia, while she's tending to a patient, sees her and kind of sneaks off after her. Um, when uh, Vanessa says that the Mother Superior was going into town quite a lot to try, to try and find out where these crazy people come from. There's been just mm-hmm. an influx of these carts that used to come maybe once a month and now coming weekly and then it was daily. And there's just this influx of the lost and the lonely and the sad and the deranged. And Mother Superior has been going into town quite a lot. And Vanessa believes that she was going into town to try and find the root of the cause, to be on the front line. And she fears that the Mother Superior is, is too far gone from God now. She's perhaps helped too much that she's lost her mind. And so she's probably going to go to the sanatorium. And, um, and she says, you know, she doubts that she has the piety to lead the, the sisters in this trying time. She's got loads of private fears. Uh, you know, she's a good soul she's good inside but she's got lots of self-doubt that she doesn't know if she's good enough doesn't know if she she believes so fervently and she believes in god and the truth and everything like that but in herself she's just always racked with in quiet contemplation of her own self-doubt yeah, yeah. sophia at that time confesses that she's there because she sought out the mother superior because she's in fact her aunt i was gonna say I wanted, what, what's yeah. with the room sneaking man okay cool okay oh, yeah. so sophia in her own village, wherever she was, she's been having these dark dreams and lots of impure thoughts that have been coming to her and things that she knows are un- or she believes that are ungodly. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas um, the mother superior went one way, her sister, Sophia's mother, went just kind of a more normal life, husband, family, didn't follow the cloth. But Sophia, the daughter, has always kind of lent towards the religious in some way. So she was having these impure thoughts and she thought the only way that she could find out what this is is to hie herself to the nunnery and repent and seek out the mother superior so that they can work together and she can join the order. And that evening, um, Sophia's in her bed in the dormitory looking at the, the flyer for Madame Fenella by candlelight. And she hears a noise and she goes down to the chapel where she sees a dark shape by the altar and she you know, calls it out, hey there, who are you? Or who goes there? Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> you want to it's not important. It's not actually important. Look, Luke. It's look, not... <laughs> we're, I like all three of those. We're keeping all of that. I like hey. I also like the addition of there for hey there. And then who goes there? A whole nother spin, man. Absolutely. Halt. Yo, zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> that was the bravest thing I've ever seen an eggplant do. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the shape um, then starts to chant and speak in tongues, soon it louder and louder. And this strange kind of pul- pulsing kind of boom, boom starts happening around the church and around the, the chapel. And the other nuns and novices and co rush into the chapel, being uh, Sister Vanessa leading the way. And the, the shape kind of scrambles up onto the, cr- crawls and scrambles up onto the altar and stands in the moonlight and it's Mother Superior who is awake and has released herself from her shackles. And she stands up, uh, bare-chested, carving runes and patterns into her flesh with like a knife and her fingers. Sister Wanessa rushes up and tries to get near, but the Mother Superior screams out in a kind of hellish scream that kind of stops everyone in the tracks. And she says, a thousand years was never enough. I am returning beyond God to Madame Fenella and an eternity beyond hell. And she's fumbling in her pockets and she pulls out something and she holds her hand aloft and a light begins to emanate from her hand or from her fingers and a crackle of lightning starts to form and then wind and, you know, papers being blown yeah, around. Candles, candles like getting more candly and then less candly. More yeah, candly, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, all the, the nuns are um, shielding the novices and everyone's like hiding in the pews and all that kind of stuff. And then behind the... Mother Superior, a strange kind of disc shape begins to open up behind her and she screams out, I go, before she drops a candle on the ground and immolates herself, screaming in unimaginable agony. As she rises on the altar, we see something leave her and get sucked into the portal before it closes. And then the candles go out and everything's calm. Cut to a dawn, moody, Grey sky dawn, and the body is heaved into a cart to be taken away from the nunnery to be disposed of. As it hits a bump, the charred arm of Mother Superior falls down from under the tarp and she drops a a little object into the mud. It's a small, like, metal kind of thimble with etched gravings on it. The nuns all return to the convent, but Sophia obviously spies the thimble and pockets it secretly. And then we, we cut to her... She's packing her things and she's got the flyer with her and she's going to leave when Sister Vanessa stops her and says, you know... Where are you going? You have to stay. You have to kind of do your two days more or one day more to take the novice Mm -hmm. if you wish. And Sophia says, you know, that I'm a guest here and I can leave at my own will and I have to find out what happened to the mother superior. I have to go into the city or wherever it is. Um, I have this. And then she reveals the flyer. She says, I I found this flyer for the Guan Guignol, um, for this play, Madame Fenella, that happened two days ago, the night night that she came back. And... uh, Sister Wanessa says, okay, you, you may leave, of course you may leave, 
but I need to go with you because the city is a dark and dangerous place and you're going to need moral guidance and you're going to need support. And I've been there. I can guide you you through there. I can guide you as you go on this journey and maybe together we can find out some peace for you and find out what happened to the Mother Superior. So that's the end of Act 1, obviously. That's like the call to action done. That's what, I don't know, 30 minutes into the movie? 25 minutes? I'm hitting like a 90-minute max. Like from what I'm hearing so far, that's what I want. And and I'm not like going to make any parallels with the Pope's Exorcist or anything like that, but I want a Mm. 90-minute rip-roaring horror, and it feels like we've got it so far. So please continue, man. Thank you. So act two, bang. Um, we're going into town now, so we've left the convent behind. Act so we're going two, into, into Paris. The city of Paris. Crikey, okay. 1900s Paris. 1900. Yeah. It's mad and loud and, and crazy and smelly. There's, there's temptations, there's hustling, there's just everything's going on. And they're getting jeered at in the streets. And Sophia is getting pushed and pulled and she's quite annoyed about it. Whereas uh, Sister Vanessa is strangely calm and serene as she walks through it all. But she's so centred with God and her, and her purpose. She's just kind of calmly going through it. And as they're walking, Sophia looks around. She starts seeing some recognisable symbols on the walls. Some like graffiti or strange markings that were similar to the ones uh, that the Mother Superior was carving on her body's and as they walk through, obviously, we get a bit of an exposition dump where Sister Wanessa explains that the Grand Guignol was actually a former chapel, and which is true, and now it's just nothing more than a den of iniquity. And they go to the theatre and they watch a matinee performance of just a regular play that, that's going on. And because it's the Grand Guignol, it's really rambunctious and wild, and up in the booths where the nuns used to be pious, there are people just openly yeah, having absolutely. sex, which, which is actually what happens. with People used to get so caught up in the, the phantasmagoria that's happening on stage that they would lose control of their senses and the hysteria and they would always kind of turn into some kind of open audience. Uh, claustrophobic, um, sort of disgusting, yeah. titillating, fascinating, horrifying. Is that all? Yeah, and there's still, there's still a play that's actually trying to go on as well. So, but they're watching the play to try and see what's going on. Wanessa is watching and she's stoic, just un- unflinching in her eyes. She's watching the play unfold, stony face. Maybe she's got a right Or like fingering a rosary or something like that. Yes, exactly. Just keeping it meditative, keeping it together, cool. Keeping it yeah. Sophia, though, because she doesn't have and that. She's been having she's a few dreams. She, she's having a few dreams, so she's kind of sitting there, just kind of getting a bit kind of angsty. Fidgety. And she can hear this, this vroom, vroom, this pulse that doesn't seem to be heard by anyone else, or certainly not by Sister Vanessa. This kind of pulsing thing, this energy. And then the play finishes, and Vanessa takes uh, Sophia backstage. And because of their sister, their status as sisters, obviously they get granted backstage access because it, to the performance, it's like the height of debauchery. And I was thinking that just to get some levity in there, that they might even be like a VIP fast track lane for nuns. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so often that they go there to kind of secretly like the scene yeah, 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 no, dude, yeah, they, they go they thinking it's going to be really, really hard to get in. And then yeah, like, they're like, course. oh yeah, of course, sisters, yeah. this way, this way, course, as, yeah. as, as usual. Yeah. But would you like to take any instruments <laughs> with you as you go to the microphone? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And like just a sweep to like, uh, and, and, and the wall looks a little bit like the Predator's uh, trophy case in Predator <laughs> yeah, 2 or exactly. something like that. <laughs> Yes, with beautiful instruments <laughs> yeah. of pleasure and French ticklers and yeah. goodness knows what else. That would be my my one gag that they think it's going to be. We're going to have to use our rosaries. Yeah. Do you know who we have to get? No, nope. Straight through, please. <laughs> Another lot. Like Ten of you have yeah, come yeah. through this afternoon yeah, already. Uh, this would, is mad. Will the priest be with you this evening? Or yeah. yeah, we are closing in ten minutes. You better be quick. Right. <laughs> so, yes, so they, uh, they go through the VIP lane. Then they go backstage. And then we meet the stage master. 
who escorts the the sisters through the theatre to his office. And obviously, he's taking them the long, winding way to his office just to kind of rile them a little bit or see where oh, they're Oh, yeah, he's taking them past all of the rooms where horrible things are occurring and testing their metal, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, Vanessa, again, is unfazed. The warm, warm is getting bigger and Sophia's maybe kind of lingering a little longer at the doorways than she should. We could have that comedy kind of... Yeah, I, I was just imagining that. Like, yeah, just like seeing the, the hand with the rosary and come out and clasp her around the <laughs> wrist and drag her on. Drag yeah. her on, yeah. So they get to the office and the stage uh, master tells Vanessa that Mother Superior was actually a regular at the theatre. This is where he's kind of needling uh, her to kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're here for... Why was she... Uh, actually, she attended here quite a lot. She didn't come into town to seek out the mad and help them. She just came straight here, man, and she just indulged in the orgiastic, most heathen pleasures known to man. She was a regular. Like, we almost gave her an act. Yeah, yeah, for someone her age, it was quite the spectacle or whatever. Yeah, yeah, giving it all that. Um, and it was true. This actually happened, but the stage master was totally needling when I Well, for him, um, it's, yeah, uh, it's an extension of the performance that he gives every night, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, everything to them is some performance, everything to try and get a rise, to try and get some titillation for themselves or for everyone else. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Sophia in the office says she needs to leave, she needs to get out because it's too oppressive, uh, can I need to get some air? So when I say yes, please, go out into the street, I'll, I'll meet you out there. So Sophia leaves the office, but obviously instead of going out into the street, she investigates the theatre further. And she, you know, she witnesses the, the performers unwinding, having sex, having drinks, taking drugs, yeah, all this yeah. kind of stuff that they do. And she goes further into the building following the noise and basically following the, kind of the pulse, using that as a track. That's, whoa, whoa. It's quite seductive. It's quite dreamlike. You can imagine as she's going down the stairs, she's kind of slumping against the mm-hmm. wall a little mm-hmm. bit. Eyes going to get drowsy as she's descending into the theatre. And then uh, she enters kind of a walkway that overlooks a big sunken open vault or atrium, yeah, cool. I guess. Yeah. She's, she's at the top. Chains are hanging, gently swaying, candles burning. Below is a stone bath, and she witnesses acolytes performing a ritual. I've written here, you know the type, candles, cowls, chanting. <laughs> it's like, it's like boxer, absolutely 100% off the peg, chanting cowls, acolytes kind of thing, you know? The pulsing now is becoming And they start to mix with the chanting that they're doing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes. okay. So they see this stone bath maybe 30 feet below her or something like that. And the acolytes bring in some goats, um, which get slaughtered. The blood from the, the goats is draining into this bath and the pulsing is getting louder in the bath. The blood is filling up this bath, a literal blood bath. <laughs> 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 and then um, as the room starts to kind of glow, we see the, the blood start to pool in the bath and it starts to form a shape. And the shape becomes a body and this old 10,000-year-old or whatever ancient woman kind of stands up made out of blood, which then turns to flesh and turns to bone. And we see it knit together like a good version of Hollow Hollow Man or whatever. Yes, exactly. It all all knits together as they're chanting away and they're all chanting her name, Madame Fenella, Madame Fenella, come to us, come come from the dark, come to the light, all this kind of stuff. And it forms and this old ancient lady gets younger and younger until she's, you know, the beautiful specimen of humankind. So there's lightning and the energy in the room and there's strange markings on the walls that correlate to the markings she's seen outside, Sophia's seen outside. And then all this crackling of electricity um, concentrates down into an object that the woman is holding in her hands, Madame Fenella is holding in her hands. 
and it's a small puzzle box. Oh, when you said chains, I was hoping this was going to happen. <laughs> so what, Sorry. what we now have oh. is a stealth <laughs> fucking Hellraiser movie. <laughs> oh, I've gone so red. I shouldn't have jumped up and down in my seat that much. I might die on camera, but it's fine. It's worth it. Dude, the minute you said chains and atrium, I so, so prayed that would be the case. I'm sorry, carry on, but this is amazing. That's okay. So Madame Fenella is holding the puzzle box and the acolytes bow to him. Sophia flees. Meanwhile, cut back to the stage master who's uh, with still talking to um, Sister Juanessa and says, you know, you're your delightful mother superior came to our great new play, Madame Fenella. Why don't you come and see for yourself? You know, it's a real revelation. Why don't you come and see what happened? If anything happened, you know, she saw the play, she left. That's all we know of our delightful mother superior, whom we loved very much. So come see. Here's two tickets. Come see it tonight. Roll up, roll up. Okay, so outside of the theatre, now they bump into each other. Vanessa's leaving and um, Sophia kind of stumbles out, kind of really panicky and after what she's seen. So they go to a hotel and Sophia tells her that what she's seen and Vanessa tells her that Mother Superior must have been investigating it in order to bring about its destruction. Like she's still kind of lying to yeah, herself. Yeah. That there was, a re- there was a godly reason why, she's, rather than the fact that she was just liked that kind of thing. You know? And Sister Vanessa says, I just need to be alone to pray and find my, find my soul. So then uh, Vanessa is left to pray and Sophia goes and walks the streets and it's one of those dark nights of the soul, middle of the second act thing where Sophia's walking in the streets and it's raining and muddy and there's drunks and there's like people having fun. It's all barreling around her. And then she bumps into a, ta- a man in a tattered suit who's kind of raving and giddy. And his suit suggests that, you know, he's probably come from some money because it's a really nice suit, but it's kind of ripped. Like aggressively. And it's got like blind stuff. Yeah, it's like he's come from something. His eyes are wild and he talks about the box and a gateway. And he, he screams in the street like he gets on top of a, like a crate or something to have a pedestal. And he screams, a thousand years, as he's ripping off his clothes, a thousand years with Madame Fenella and her children is never enough. And he strips away all his clothes to reveal that he's kind of pretty much flayed underneath it. And he's just like a living yes, kind of... Yes. Not skeleton, but just like all yeah, the flesh yeah, yeah. and the yep. blood and the, the musculature is still there. And he's screaming and the police come and drag him away. And he screams, Madame Fenella, the Grand Guignol, tonight. And then people in the street kind of laugh along. They think it's a marketing yeah, yeah, stunt. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can, and they all like shuffle off excitedly talking about the performance. And, oh, maybe we should go. This sounds quite fun. So that evening, Vanessa and Sophia attend the Grand Guignol Theatre to see this performance to get to the, the bottom of it. Um, again, Vanessa is focused and serene and the pulse is stronger than ever. And um, Sophia in it has her hand in her pocket and she's holding the the thimble that the Mother Superior drops and she's holding it and it's, it's kind of becoming almost like a crutch to her. So the play begins with a series of short horror vignettes followed by comedy vignettes, which was kind of the, the Grand Guignol styling at the time. They would mix it up. They would do little horror things and then, then the light and dark, light yeah. and dark, light and dark. And then it's all very kind of pedestrian. Everything's going on as we've already seen. And then in the final act comes, the candles somehow dim and onto the stage comes the stage a master who introduces the ancient and mystical Madame Fenella, who has the power of heaven and hell in her hands. She can open up a doorway to paradise, and who amongst you believes? And everyone says, we believe, we believe. Who amongst you is brave enough to see? And they are, we, we are brave enough. He's always kind of pitching an interactive theatre event kind of thing. So everyone's going wild, and he says, you know, then behold, and Madame Fenella is revealed on the stage, beautiful, 
naked, perfect, just standing there in all her power, just holding the puzzle box in her hand. And already people are like cram, uh, clamoring to get on the stage to get to her, to get near her. And is this where the bawdiness starts to drop and something primal takes over? Are we starting to see that exerted upon the audience now and it starts to get a bit more yeah. intense, a bit nastier, a bit exactly. less? Even as soon as, as soon as she appears, even Sister Vanessa kind of draws a breath for a second right, the first time that, that she's right, cracked. Right, we've got uh, Sister Vanessa is there and we, we can see the rosary, 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 rosary and she's been doing this and she did this previously when mm. they visited and Maybe then that's exactly it. it. The second she turns up... Sophia like, starts to feel sick and the pulsing is almost painful now and she looks across and she can see Sister Vanessa's hands on her thighs just kind of getting into it, just, like gripping her own thighs and just kind of something's happening to her. And the crackling of the lightning box occurs as the Madame Fenella starts to, to fondle it and play mm-hmm. with the box and kind of reconfigure it. And then behind her, the portal, a portal opens up, a big oval behind Madame Fenella. There's this weird scrabble towards this doorway to paradise. And then in the portal, you see some silhouettes of people appear, just in the back, just standing there. With, we'll have a load of dry ice. Oh, 100%, of yeah, of course, of course. These silhouettes beckon to the crowd who all finally get onto the stage and rush past. Uh, Madame Fenella and into the portal and Sophia shouts at Sister Vanessa but it's too late even she dives over now and Sister Vanessa um, is lost to it and hurls herself over the balcony and into the man is climbing over people and Sophia starts to hear like the whips and the chains <laughs> from within the portal and the screams and the sounds of squelching and tearing and maybe some of the piles of the bodies are trying to claw their way back out of the portal they're getting dragged back and flesh is being seared and ripped and flayed and then the portal sh- Closes and it's silence. Sophia is left alone in the audience, her heart beating really hard. And then the portal reopens and the audience all crawl and clamour back out into the auditorium, bearing horrific in- injuries, their eyes bulging with ecstasy and madness. And then the stage master comes on stage and directs them out into the night to tell them, tell the world of the wonders that they've seen mm-hmm. only at the Grand Guignol. Sophia climbs down for the audience when she sees Sister Vanessa. And she kind of helps her up and scoops her out from the, the, the masses. She grabs her and takes her out into the street. But unlike the others, Sister Vanessa seems less elated, but totally fearful and lost. And she takes her Does back to the hotel. Does she know who Sophia is? Is she sort of compassmentous enough? Yeah, she's, to... she's, got, she's got some recognition, um, and she, but she's not completely debauched. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, she hasn't done she's a mother like, superior yet kind of a thing. Yeah, okay. but she's kind of, she's totally kind of almost yep. blank. She's lost and... Yeah. So back in the hotel, Vanessa is muttering, mad in the bed, just muttering, telling of the impossible sights and experiences in a place way beyond God and way beyond hell. And it was there that the Mother Superior went, and she says she experienced a thousand years of torment and hell in that time that she was in there. And she didn't go mad because it was her faith that kept her steady. She endured everything Mm -hmm. because it was her faith. And she did not succumb to the pleasures, but only the pain. And Mother Superior was alive, and she was there, and she was still burning, and they spoke. And um, the Mother Superior tried to tempt Vanessa to stay forever. She said that a thousand years is not even a blink. Forsake your earthly beliefs, as she did, and join the new learn God. Learn to love the flame. Everlasting- and learn to love the flame. Join the new God in everlasting agony and pleasure. 
The usual Hellraiser oh, yeah, stuff. Absolutely. And she says that Vanessa says that she was almost succumbing after all this torment and torture. Uh, when the Mother Superior says that soon Madame Finella, um, to appease the rest, relentless appetites of the Cenobites, will open the portal for good and unleash them into the world. So there is a pact between Madame Finella. She's kind of like a gatekeeper to the mm-hmm. box. And she, she has a pact with him, like she'll release the portal so the Cenobites can feast like once a day or once every two days on these people and put them back to keep the appetites going. And to keep uh, her but, eternally like youthful or powerful or all of the above. All the above. So they've got this little mm-hmm. sympathetic, but the, the Cenobites want more now. They want to, they want everything. And Vanessa then got her belief and her strength back and managed to escape a bondage, but she spent countless years within mm-hmm. the maze of the puzzle box, trying to find a way out, getting lost, seeing things and experiencing things beyond the realms of imagination, trying to find God and a way back to the theatre when eventually phew, the portal just opened and she just came back like everybody else. It was only if, as if moments had passed, but she'd spent all this time in there. So Sophia's like, how do we stop this? Um, and she says, we can't, you know, Madame Fenella sends things. She sends things and she brings you back. And Sophia's like, well, we have to find a way of going and bringing ourselves back. And like, well, how are we going to do this? Then Sophia reveals the, the thimble. She, she believes that this can bring us back. And she doesn't know how, but she believes it can because the Mother Superior used it to try and open a portal to go back. So she's got something that she brought yeah. back. So now they have it. So they go back to the Grand Guignol for the third act showdown. Cool. And this is where it gets into total sketchiness because I haven't got anything for the third act. It's just a big fight. It's just they go into, they go into the, the box bit like the end of Hellraiser 2, really. They will have a big showdown. But what I've got is one, two, three, four, five different endings. Okay. Uh, one of those endings, I hope, has got a B-movie ending attached to it. Right, yes. that's good. So in that case, as long as you <laughs> choose one of those ones, we won't have a problem yes. at all, man. Uh, so are they going into the box? Are they going to... Are they... Because the Cenobites kind of can't be defeated, sort of. They're always mm-hmm. eternal. They need, they need to be... Yeah, that's it. So that's the, the only thing we're going to do. Madame Fenella, however, is the gatekeeper of the box and therefore is up yes. for grabs as far as slaughtering or... Yes. Yeah, we need, to, we need to remove Madame Fenella from the box or remove her power to use the box or do something. The idea being, the eventual idea with each of these is that they trap her within mm-hmm. the box so she can't go yeah, back yeah, out. Yeah, 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 the, the old genie trick, man, absolutely. The yeah, old yeah. genie trick, exactly. So, final fight, make it up. That's what we're <laughs> <laughs> Ending ideas. Uh, Sister Wanassas sacrifices herself to eternity of the Cenobite realm to save Sophia and collapse the cube Fenella uh, and vaults and theatre in on itself. So that, that is completely legit. And sacrificing, mm-hmm. like Vanessa Woods, she's got enough strength in her even after going through hell for a thousand years yeah. to do something like that and also has a reason to because yes. she's also seen things that she can't really unsee and it has broken yes. her And it's her, be- it's her belief to stop this. It's how she finds God. She's going to be the vessel for God to kind of thing. And her last line is, there's no belief without sacrifice when she says oh, goodbye. Oh. Like, let, let Sophia go. A bit like in... Um, the way um, Lawrence Fishburne's spoilers sacrifice in Event Horizon. In Event Horizon. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. Other one, which I quite like this one. Sophia sacrifices herself to save Sister Vanessa, thereby restoring Sister Vanessa's faith in herself and in God and the fight for God versus evil. Sister Vanessa never returns to the convent, but then wanders the earth seeking out stories of Madame Fenella and her type so that in similar occurrences, now that she has the thimble, that she can go in and stop them okay. all. She becomes a... Bad ass. Fucking wandering nun, man. Cenobite slaying wandering See, nun. 
Ronin kind of thing. That's right, look, good. Sophia is groovy, and I've got a hell of a lot of time for Sophia. But I have mm. probably when I while I've been watching. Thank you, by the way. While I've been watching this in the mind cinema, man, I have definitely been like mm. with Vanessa a little bit more. I think. Um, yeah, as I was writing, I was like, oh, she's yeah. quite badass. Do you know why? I think because she's like Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> she's like so. <laughs> she's so fucking it's down. Stern but about she her still beliefs. Hasn't, though, and they're still like they're being tested yeah, and broken, and yet she survives hell. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's the two. That's one, I think that's, that's my favourite of the two. I, I've got two okay, more. Give me the others. Okay. Yep. One uh, sister Vanessa succumbs and turns into a Cenobite along with. Not the superior in the final fight. Sophia battles them all and escapes, crushing the theatre, etc. Ends on her walking into the night, screaming, hysterical and mad, like the ending of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, you can tell I'm running out of ideas here, because Wanessa uh, <laughs> and Sophia sacrifice themselves by sealing Madame Finella inside the cube along with them, uh, thereby all locking them all into the cube for all eternity but saving Paris from the Cenobites. Why you would want to save Paris from anything is beyond <laughs> But yeah, they, they make a pact, so they, save them, they sacrifice each other. I think I, I like number two still now more. Look. I like number two. B-moving ending idea. Uh, Sister Vanessa or Sophia yep. make it out alive, and they go back to the dormitory, and they're standing there in the darkness when they're all sleeping, knackered. They've survived. Beam of light comes through. And they stand there, and then from their pocket, they pull out the puzzle box. And they stand amongst all the, the nuns, and it crackles with electricity. But because they're in their nun habit or whatever, in the darkness, it, it will, the silhouette will look like yes, yes, the silhouette yes, yes. robes, even though they're not. So that was my pitch for a 90-minute stealth a Hellraiser sequel, but also prequel puzzle box horror that film. Was Madame extremely Finale. like I for all you listeners, I legitimately did jump up and down in my seat when Hellraiser was revealed <laughs> to be what it was. That was just incredible and genuinely, truly, my face is still slightly, slightly puce from the amount of excited blood that was flying all around my body when that happened. Man, oh, thank you so much. I wanted it. Actually, started out. I think my, my main touch point was like Dario Argento, like Suspiria or Profondo Rosso or something like that. Very gyro, very kind of neon lit, mm-hmm. weird Dutch angles, gore, pulsating music. But as I was writing it, it turned more into kind of a, no, yes, a standard horror. That's I think what John I've Carpenter written down here. Prince fun. of Darkness, John Carpenter, like absolutely that would go there, dude. Uh, have, you got any other, uh, have you got any other directors that you've attached before I start getting all excited? I'd want... It's too late, I'm excited. Well, I'd want Dario Argento. <laughs> you stay excited. I will keep all <laughs> to, to, fluffy yes. excitement for the end of the Completion. episode. I think with the, with the nuns and the, the horny AF elements and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> Nicholas Winding <laughs> Renf would be pretty good. Yeah. Whether he can make it 90 minutes, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He might a get a little bit caught up in himself. What about, if, can I offer you a, a similar a contemporary uh, of his, Panos Cosmatos, maybe? Uh, I feel that yes. he would give the weirdness yeah, and all of that without getting too uh, up his own bottom, I suppose. No offence, Mr. Wereffing, but you do like that. 100%. I would like also Prino Bailey Bond. Uh, I was thinking Saint Rose Glass, who did St. Maud. I'd like to see yes. that working yes. within that the property, but like, I just the stealthiness is just lovely, mm-hmm. man. Okay, so have we got... Any any other directors that you were sort of like coming up, man? I no, I think that five are pretty good. I think we've got um, uh, what that's was Rose who Glass, Saint Maud, somebody Glass, Rose Glass. Sorry, uh, apologies, uh, Miss Glass and Prano Bailey Bond and Panos Cosmatos. 
Um, Dario Gento, if we can teleport him from, or transport yeah, him yeah, back yeah, from yeah. the 70s, please. And Nicholas Winding Renf, if we can keep him under 90 minutes. Well, thank you so much for uh, letting me pitch Madame Fenello. I had quite a bit of fun writing it and pitching it to you and seeing your reaction. It was really nice and fulfilling. You did, as you said before, literally I jump out of your I nearly sat on a bollock uh, reveal, for you there, man. Really... It was very close. <laughs> well, now you're over, now you're over 40. This is a real impressive yeah, danger. God, I, got, I should wear a couple. So anyway, carrying yeah. on uh, away from my, my what's-its to your uh, what's-its, man. Please continue. I'm going to... Gently lower my gonads <laughs> into a bowl, just in case there's any jumping up, sitting down problems that might occur as you lovingly and creatively pitch your horse to me, which I gave you last week, which is called Absolutely She's is. the Danger. I'm taking to the seas, and I'm going to introduce you to Thomas Cuttlerore, the captain of Dolan's Peach, who has got a thirst for adventure. Cool. Dolan's captain, Peach. Captain of what? <laughs> <laughs> Are we talking about sitting on ourselves again? <laughs> I'm giving myself Dolan's peach. See the size of it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, is the, the boat. Dolan's peach ship. is the boat. Uh, it is captained by Thomas Cuttlerore, um, who has a uh, vast thirst for adventure. Dolan's peach is a, uh, is a fair-run ship. Uh, it's a free ship run by free men. It's there to do things such as uh, transport cargo, Every now and again, they will do some kind of a, uh, a uh, uh, they will guard ships as they uh, go from port to port. Uh, that's their kind of bag, and they won't be going around pillaging or sinking any ships, scuttling them, nicking all their stuff. They've got a code, and they live by it, and they enjoy the freedom that the sea brings. And they also hope that one day they'll be able to take the money that they've made and settle down kind of a thing is what Thomas... Okay. So I what guess... time period are we talking about? thought. Like, no, that's okay. Uh, if it weren't Sorry. the troll was merely sitting on a ball, I would have had time to uh, <laughs> Google uh, when pirates were. I think <laughs> we're looking around the... Uh, I think it's the 16th, man. So Thomas Cuttlerore, captain of Dolan's Peach, thirst for adventure, always claiming to his crew, and they sort of love him for it because he does look after them very well, but he's saying the, the secret to riches and, and our wildest dreams are always around the corner, man. Oh, I love this guy. Let's cast Toby <laughs> Jones because we always do that. Oh, he looks so good like because uh, he's slightly, well, he's, you know, he's relatively thinning, but I would like a ponytail just out of the remnants mm. of the hair at the back, that kind of uh, naval yes. look. Yes. Right, so Thomas Cutterall, obviously you can't sail a ship <laughs> alone. <laughs> it's a ridiculous prospect, no. man. So by his Laughable. side, um, he's got um, Hod Calrain. Uh, his his quartermaster, his trusted uh, confidant, his second in command, kind of a thing. They're, they're up front, man. They're having a look. They're surveying the scene. They're also having, as they do, a little bit of a one to one where they're saying, "Right, uh, Thomas Hod is saying, you know, we're kind of <laughs> yeah, we're kind right. of low on foods. Uh, we're low on funds. We're low, relatively speaking, on morale. Um, we need to get back to port. We've got to pick up some work." And Thomas says to him, look, Hod, you've earned those scars. God love you for them. Like, I've earned this ship. They're a part of us, man. And Karain, like it or not, they always will be. And he's like, yeah, I, Tom, but I can choose to not make new scars, just like you can step foot back to land for good. We need something. And so do the boys. So they sail back mm-hmm. to port. And on the way back to port, they're hailed by a great giant ship like this this big beast of a thing that is out to sail the high seas and take ships it's a privateering vessel called the dread of corsica that thomas is called aboard uh, the cap- captain uh, alcott woodbean 
is a privateer working for the king, and he demands to know what Thomas is up to. And these here, the king's own oceans. Thomas says he's a free ship with a crew of free men, and they get by on escorting ships, protection, transport, a jack of all trades. And he's like, oh, that pay well, does it? It's like, adventure is reward enough. Like, what are we doing here? Like, what is your problem? Why have you pulled me over? Kind of a thing, almost like a police stop in a... They allow two of Walcott's officers on board while the two men stay in the captain's quarters and the captain, uh, Woodbean, and keeps on grilling them. They're, they're going through this tense. Uh, they're all showing each other their papers and we've got um, the, uh, the two men are over on the ship, Quick and Thurburn, and they're doing whatever they're doing and investigating over there. And it's starting to build and build and build and then suddenly there's a commotion uh, outside the quarters down the hall. There's a wailing and like there's running footsteps. A door crashes open and one of his men, like clearly very harried, just says like, uh, Captain, Captain, Mr. Woodbean, sir, we need you, we need you. And like the Thomas uh, uh, and Hod can spy in the background just like this bloodied, frantic, screaming form who's like emerged from the, the, the bowels of the ship. And they're like, what the f- what's going on? But before they can get any closer look, everyone piles out of the office and goes to like try and look after whatever's going on here because seriously, something is kicking off. Uh, during all of this commotion, Hod obviously gives in to the, uh, the feelings that he's had about this loot kicking around his ankles for the last few minutes. Like, as a little, oh, I'll do my boots up, grabs a like, handful of the change from underneath and whacks it in his pocket kind of a thing. Uh, Olcott, like Woodbean, is immediately desperate to get these guys off of the ship. His tune changes the second he comes inside. He's like, right, yeah, your papers are fine, like, get the hell out of here and, like, you know, just get off my ship, basically. I've got my two guys back, you get on your way. Get into port quickly, look after yourself, don't be bad. Like, I've got to get out of here. It'd be quite comedic if he's trying to get, he's now trying to get rid of them, and by confusion, they're trying to stay back. Like, we haven't signed it in Tropical. Like, normally you, you, you need to, for us yeah, to go, as, you need as to sign they're this, doing this, this like, get off my like boat. his second keeps you know I mean? coming in and being like, Mr. Woodbean, sir, Mr. Woodbean, sir, we really need you, Mr. Woodbean, sir. And like, he'll come in with like a scratch on his face or something like that and sort of come in slightly more tattered. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. More and more tattered each time. <laughs> his sleeve has been bitten. <laughs> Like, each time it's, then he comes in with no sleep. So, like, this is all kicking off and something's up. That would be so uh, good. They, they get the hell off the yeah. boat. They want to get back to port. That's their main consideration as they are manoeuvring themselves away from the mm-hmm. dread cannon fire. The dread starts to, out of absolutely nowhere, have a go at Dolan's Peach. Wow. So, when, when it's going on port, when it goes on broadside... Using the expert scene, this is where Thomas shows to the, us, the audience, how good a seaman he actually is. So he gets them like against the wind or whatever it is to be. The, put he's back like, against they're turning, they're honest, they're honest, hot, they're honest. And he's like a bollocks captain, they're never going to be honest. And he's like, they're, they're honest. And he starts shouting out commands immediately and the crew snap to it. So they escape the cannon shot of the dread, thank God. And they sail back to the nearest island port. But instead of going straight into port, of course, they tuck themselves away in a cove so they can set about fixing their splintered stern. Hod and Thomas, they've gone into, into the main port place. They've got their food supplies coming, the water. Um, they're having a drink in the tavern. What are you going to do, man? They've been through a lot. You're not going to not do that. Hod is playing um, this, this game of poker or whatever pirates played back then. Again, I must do some Googling. I'm not sure. We'll say poker. I guess it's an old game. Oh, of course they did. Pop so okay, right, Hod is, is putting a tiny blue plastic Sorry, yeah. dagger... <laughs> <laughs> the blue sword. And, and it's the tent, we <laughs> cut in on it, and this handshaking. Um, and he's playing yeah. it with a young man called Ricketts. Um, and Ricketts is in his cups, man. He's absolutely uh, shine-eyed with booze. 
and he seems very happy with himself and he starts boasting about a lot of money that he and the crew he's on, that he's only recently joined and how much money they've made today. Mm. And he's saying, hey, you'll never believe what we've done. We've been up to all sorts, all sorts, and it's bringing us coin that we can't even spend there's that much of it. We can't even store there's that much of it. In <laughs> fact, the man I'm with has had to make an entire island to hold his booty and there he keeps it in a ship that's too heavy even to float and is up on, up on, pulled up onto the beach itself where it stores this great gold. And he's getting, yeah, Ricketts oh, is all man, over the place, lips, man. He is, he is absolutely loving it. And he flicks a coin into the, uh, into the middle of the pot. And, of course, it's got the stamp of wood bean on. And Hod's immediately like, right, fuck, they're here. We need to get the hell out of here immediately. Thomas, we got to go, man. And he's suddenly like, right, conspicuous in the speed with which he's leaving the table. Hod kind of blows his cool a little bit, man. But he's just like, shit, like mm-hmm. they're fucking next door, man. Yeah, we yeah. need to fix up, get our stuff, get the hell out of it. And as he's doing it, Ricketts spots him. And he's like, here, hold on a second, hold on a second. What's with that face of yours, man? What's with that face of yours? You're that scarred bastard our captain was talking about, yes. aren't you? Bang! Massive bar brawl in shoes. So that's that's all kicked off, man. Yes. Like as this is happening, like Thomas is just trying to hold his own and like survive this flipping bar fight that he's happening. You know, he's knocking people here and there, and no one's really paying attention to who's punching who anymore. The only person who's interested in who is who is Ricketts, and he's slipping out the back of the tavern. So Hod spies him leaving. He's like, Thomas, you got this, man. <laughs> Thomas roundhouses some dude, uh, has a swig of grog, man. He's like, yeah, I got this, Hod, man. This is adventure. Um, but Hod cracks on with this, uh, the foot chase, man. Um, two of uh, other crew members are there from uh, the Dread, and they're all just trying to hightail it back to tell their captain. Um, the two, two other crew members decide, like, well, I gotta, I'll, I'll, we'll stop Hod from getting to, 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 to Ricketts mm. as long as Ricketts can make it man that doesn't matter that's all we need to do or we might actually be able to capture the bastard ourselves in fact why are we even running to tell someone when we keep doing the job ourselves and he's like come on come on you bastard and Hod's like yeah fucking right mate he's up for some you know he wants that and he can easily yes he is it's been written on sure mine and that's why I'm doing the vibe so sorry I was meant to like keep a little bit of like casting but it's impossible <laughs> and that's it and it is Bastards. Yeah, and then bang massive fight he like muskets yeah, one of them straight bastards. out the bat man and then there's a big old sort of like dockside brawl as we see ricketts in the distance climbing up uh the uh the the, the gangplank to get on board man he's made it unfortunately hod bests the other guy mm-hmm. obviously because he's hod and then back he goes to rescue thomas from from mm-hmm. the bar so now we have to uh deal with the uh fallout from ricketts and his loose lips man so while uh, Hod and Thomas are regrouping, they're getting their supplies done. They're talking about what the hell is going on here, man. Thomas is pushing for the chase of the adventure. Hod is slightly resistant kind of a thing. Um, but they think, well, the worst we could do is, at a distance, try and follow that ship. We'll put up some different rigging because we've had to refit the mast anyway. We can somewhat disguise ourselves. Mm-hmm. What about if um, mm-hmm. Thomas is already up for the chase and Hod's kind of wavering, but Thomas plays on Hod to go, like, he killed the two guys, but he let one get away. And like, you know, you bastard. You bastard. Come on. <laughs> Sounds like you lost the fight. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like Hod kind of wants so. to get rolled up, man. He's like, all right, you're a persuasive bastard. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. on we go, you know, like that kind of a thing, man. On we go then. 
I didn't lose that fight. I'm not going to find that bastard and tell him that I didn't lose that fight. He's going to tell you. Yeah, they're getting further away at this point. Can we just go? I bloody didn't. I didn't lose that. And that comes up throughout the movie. like As he's saying, like, well, if he hadn't lost that fight, we would never have been in there. I didn't lose that fucking fight. And he's up in the crow's nest or whatever. or I did not lose that fucking fight. So they are now, like, they have decided the ship. Dolan's Peach, it's set up. It's uh, restocked, it's fixed, and they are deciding they're going to follow um, the Dread of Corsica. So we cut to the Dread of Corsica, mm-hmm. and young Pete Ricketts has to get his comeuppance for his loose mm-hmm. lips, man. Ricketts is obviously as pissed as a fart, man. He gets pulled up onto the uh, up onto the deck in front of the crew, in front of Woodbean, who stood there holding court. And at that point, we go fix camera onto the uh, body of Ricketts as he's tossed. One shot over the side of the uh, of the uh, ship, and they are about to keel haul him. We see him hit into the barnacles, we see him bounce off of the hull, and then we see the rope get caught, frayed, and it snaps, and he flies off uh, way behind the ship, sort of into nothingness, and that's kind of the last we see of Ricketts and his, uh, mm-hmm. his punishment for now. He floats free, limp, he kicks, spasms, and then starts to break for the surface. The dread soars on. Uh, the, the Dolan's Peach is following... Uh, Lo and behold, who should come floating about from the uh, wake of the dread, but uh, beaten, bloodied, ruined, still just about alive rickets. And they haul him up onto deck. Mountjoy, Dr. Mountjoy, who is the ship's doctor of the peach, uh, takes him under his wing, he cleans his wound, wounds, <laughs> wound, he wishes there was just a wound. Uh, and as far as Hod's concerned, he said, he's a rat, he always will be. Put him down with the other rats, keep him tied. So they put him down into the bottom of the ship. But Mountjoy, being a doctor and good of, con- of good conscience, uh, continues to visit Ricketts to clean his wounds, to talk to him like a human, a clever man. He gets slightly inside of his head and to maybe find out the location of where the dread might next stop. And Ricketts is befuddled enough, bruised enough, yeah. and so surprised by being shown any kind of uh, kindness. He talks a little more than he should, as is his want to do kind of a thing, man. So they're following on. <laughs> they know where the next port is going to be. Um, and Ricketts has kept relatively close-lipped about the island he mentioned and this great heavy ship festoon with the balloons, that kind of a thing, man. Um, but he will say that they'll be in the next port of San Lucia or whatever. That's where they're going next. And so they get there first. Um, and this, is, this isn't like, there's not a huge chunk of story in this bit, but what they're going to do, they're going to get to port. Um, okay. They are going to mm-hmm. find, they're going to need to sneak onto um, the Dread, and they are going to need to, exactly yep. that, do some, do recon, some recon, and then find the location of the island itself kind of a thing. So, as they are trying to heist the Dread, um, and I'm not, I think, I think Mountjoy is going to be the one who gets caught. And Alcott, at this point, he's like, he's feeling pretty full of himself at this point, man. He's captured one of the bastards, man. He's going to get the information out of where the rest of the bastards are that belong to this bastard. Mm. And he's in his captain's quarters, and he starts to give, like, a bit of a bad guy speech. And then, thank God, Hod is out there lighting a fuse on the uh, on the port, and at this point, the, the entire dread is rocks from side to side <sighs> by this massive explosion uh, dockside. And uh, Mountjoy nice. is just able to dive obviously through the window of the cabin man and out into the ocean where he swims to freedom just about. <laughs> so now it's a race to the island because we know that uh, Woodbean knows exactly where it is uh, and we know that 
Lovejoy's Mount Joy, Lovejoy. <laughs> he's got off the ship with some lovely antique uh, tables, and he's <laughs> had a wonderful time, man. <laughs> so Mount Joy is—he's uh, got the information. A however, cup of tea with whether that's a map or something like that. Um, the peach is ahead, but not mm. by much. And every now and again, they can see the dread. Sort of when the wind favours the dread, they can see it uh, from the crow's nest. So mm. it's exactly down to seamanship, especially when a storm hits, man, which is exactly what's happened midway through this, like, sea chase. It slows them down, oh, it puts yes. them off course. Uh, and during the storm, Lovejoy, with his injured shoulder, is uh, going down to... T- Lovejoy. It is Lovejoy. Love it is Lovejoy. I'm just so call sorry. It's We're Lovejoy. just going to call him Lovejoy. Gone. It's Lovejoy uh, now. Lovejoy sorry. is. So... <laughs> Lovejoy. <laughs> we'll do it mid-scene. But in the film, can we also like, film, like completely change how he looks? So he's got it. like the hair of Lovejoy and stuff after they mention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the big leather jacket with the pads. And like Tinker. Stonewall's We're denim, bring Tinker big in, white trainers. <laughs> yeah. No, Tinker's that was it. There. I was stunned. I don't remember anyone else. Dread Tinker out from the Linda depths, Bellingham, man. I think, wasn't it? So they're in the middle of this massive storm, man. <laughs> and uh, Mount Joy, the doctor, is like, look, I've got a Lovejoy. Sorry. I'm, Lovejoy. I'm getting it now double wrong. Uh, Lovejoy, <laughs> the, uh, the doctor, is like, well, look, whatever, whatever is going on, I have my responsibility. I have got someone in my charge beneath decks where it's probably flooding now because we're in the middle of us. I've got to go and check and make sure that Ricketts is okay. But he gets down there uh, and Ricketts is limp, lifeless, looks for all intents and purposes dead. And as uh, Mountjoy leans forward, as Lovejoy leans forward to uh, look and see how uh, young Ricketts is, Ricketts thrusts his hands up and starts throttling uh, Mountjoy, man. And he chokes the life out of him. The last we see of him is floating face down in the bowels of uh, Donan's Peach. Ricketts has escaped, and he's now a rogue agent on the ship kind of a thing. And we see him, like, ferreting about as he does and getting himself uh, a musket, getting himself a coverall that looks like the ones that the, the guys are wearing, trying to get some semblance of a disguise about him. We, we follow this and we follow him sort of like sneaking around up. up uh, obviously, we've got Thomas, who is doing some fantastic uh, seamening uh, uh, and captaining, and he is getting them through the storm. He is completely focused on getting each one of the crew exactly where they need to be to do exactly what they need to do to mean that they can survive this. Uh, we've got Ricketts on the side. He's just emerged from, you know, your trapdoor in the floor somewhere, and he's, he doesn't really know where he is or what the ship's like. And he emerges and he sees Thomas and Hodds, and they're not that far away. And yes, the sea is raging, but the storm is starting to somewhat peter out. But in lieu, uh, or where the, where the storm leaves, the fog obviously comes in, man. And so he, we see Ricketts, and he's just lining up and lining up, and the fog is getting denser and denser all around the ship, and everything's starting to calm down, and it's almost getting to this mm-hmm. moment of peace where he can pull the trigger in. And then we hear a cry from the uh, deck of the dread, and it's close. There's fog everywhere, but the dread is now really close. And Ricketts thumbs the hammer back, and he's like, I could probably let the dread know exactly where the peach is, and they can do the rest of the work for me. And so we see him pop down, and then we just see him going up the rigging. And that's the last we see for a second. And then we're back to, like, Thomas. We're back to Hod. Hod and Carl Raw. They're sat there now, and it's like literally the calm after the storm. They have just heard a shout from the deck of the dread as well. They can hear the ship's bell. They know it's really close, but they can't see more than like 10 meters ahead, man. But they can hear it. And Thomas is, I sense danger, Hod. And Hod's like, sense it. We're stood on it. It surrounds us. You needn't look yonder. 
and he knocks very gently on like the, the hang railing next to him. She's the danger, Thomas. Always has been. Her an adventure. And they'll see us both to our graves yet. And Thomas says, I hod. Maybe yet, but not today. Distant shouts from the dread. It's getting closer. <laughs> really, really close. Even the sails whipping above them sounds like thunder to the men who are trying to be quiet. A crewman comes to Cuttlewoor and he lets him know that they've just found the body of Mountjoy down in the, uh, in the depths of the ship. And he can't even grieve properly, one, because he's on the middle of the deck, and two, because he's got to be completely silent. So we just see him just internalise all of this, and Hod puts an arm on his shoulder, and that's the best any of them can do at that point, man. And we, we're, we're looking up, the camera's looking up um, at the face of Thomas and Hod as they're there. And in the distance, we've got all of the rigging and the masts and everything like that. And then suddenly the crow's nest erupts in flames, man. And chaos, absolute chaos, man. Nice. Right, yeah. it's like a beacon. Ricketts, he's Ricketts sly little rat off. man, he's good, yes. he knows what to do in a sticky situation, he's an absolute... He is, oh, I hate this guy. So oh, that explodes in flames, him. and bang, now we've got a fog battle between two ships, one of whom can see the other ship, man, and they are getting... Absolutely, Just yeah, up yeah. By and so that's where Thomas has to really knuckle oh. down. He has got to do the best uh, captaining and sailing and commanding that he has ever done to try and get them out of the situation because they are—they're—they're they're literally a beacon in the fog, man. Their target practice for the dread at this point, man. Some of the crew are just absolutely getting completely destroyed in front of everyone, man. All of this is happening, um, as well as the fact that he is doing some of the best captioning he's ever done, and eventually manages to outmaneuver by just turning around and leaving the dread in circles because the dread is at least a bigger ship. It hasn't got the maneuverability of Dolan's Peach. They can use the yeah. fog to their advantage once the fire is out, which takes a long time and it causes a hell of a lot of casualties on board. Man, how does he? How does he do it? Can you do something sneaky like? Um like a do or die moment, like he puts oh, on beacons of some kind on the, uh, on, on the ship. Uh, yeah, floats them out. What are they called? Lifeboats. <laughs> See, I'm so brave, I don't even know the word. <laughs> lifeboats, Graham, they're called lifeboats. Like he does something like a distraction and like he sends them out that's into the water. That's brilliant. No, 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 no not and something, man. Something. That's bang on. That is exactly, yeah, lifeboats and the flame yeah. is beautiful, man. Yeah, we got right, nothing. So if we, right, if we, so that's if what we happens. Lifeboats, Trailer then... lifeboats, man. And they managed to put out, soar off the top. Uh, they've, they've lost a lot of mass. They've lost a lot of capability, but they've survived, man. And they know where they're going. They have now escaped. Just. Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine the, the ship. They're, they're doing the damage report and everyone's really sad. And then you see them, yeah. like, bringing out Mountjoy's body and, and the look of distrust on the crew or disappointment. It's doubly worse for Thomas. Like this, so we have, they're sort of we're doing the, the slow sail. Thomas, he's lost, man, and he's like, Hod, I, um, this is probably the first time that I, I really, I'm not sure how to captain you. I don't know how to be your captain anymore after what I've done and what has happened to everyone. And Hod just kind of goes, gets up and says, well, we're in too far now, lad. Best we make this bastard pay. And if we can swoop his booty out from under his nose at the same time, I can live with that. God bless you, Hod. 
And one, one more thing. I didn't lose that bloody fight. <laughs> yes, man. Yes, yes. Let me tell you this, well, I son, do I remember, because at the end, fight. that needs to be said at a certain point, okay? There's a... Okay? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Ricketts... Where's Ricketts? He's, point, he's had overboard, way. man. No, he hasn't. That's a very good question. What the hell happened to Ricketts, man? I think, quite frankly, that little rascal escaped even my imagination. He's that foxy. <laughs> he's that one. He must have... Yeah, he's jumped ship. Maybe he, he got on board. Why would he get on board the lifeboats that would have been blown up? We need to think. We need to have as the the ship is floating, he's holding on to like a barrel or something, and he's got on board. He's got away. So he's unless he's, on, unless he's on board. Oh I don't my know. god, I hate him so much. I want a sequel focused on hunting Ricketts down. Okay, I'm so upset. I haven't brought him to justice. Hmm. Well, he wants to go to the where yeah. He the, wants the like booty a chase of that he? booty man. He knows he can't go back to the Corsica. He's got to hang in the peak of to kill him or whatever. And he's just got to have his, yep. find his own way to yeah, get yeah. to the treasure, wherever it is they're getting to. But somehow, so he's probably still, on, maybe he's snuck back on board the Corsica. One of the two. Well, I'm imagining him sort ship. of uh, like, again, like, because we're, we're, we're doubling down on his rattiness, man, clinging onto the side of one of the ships. Uh, like, I can see him on, like, uh, uh, yeah, like either up yeah, in the rigging, like the rigging or on the side that is not obviously uh, beneath the sea, just sort of like clinging on for sort of, sort of dear life because that's what he does is just yeah. survive situations, then deal with the next thing, man. Yeah, he's like yeah, a, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. nice. He's like a barnacle, and he's like clinging. And then when it, when it goes, the sun goes down, then he climbs back onto the boat to exist. Almost, like like a, yeah. some kind of monster, loss of variety. Yeah, and he's eating rancid apples, and he's drinking. Like stale yeah, yeah. water with this... maggots and stuff like that. Yeah, and then and then nook. he climbs back to his little yeah, yeah, yeah. bolt hole or something. This nook that he's hammered into the boat, and he's like creating this thing that's kind of underneath the yeah, bow yeah, yeah, by the yeah. rudder where you can't quite see it. He's like yeah, like festering yeah, right. in there so, like a right, Okay, so that's what he's up to. That's man. where he is. Yeah. So they're straight on it, man. Um, and they are going now. They're mm-hmm. making a break for the island because that's all they can do because one, it'll offer them a place to try and like actually make some repairs. So they get to the island um, and they find that the booty is not just uh, this overflowing ship, which does indeed exist and does indeed look too uh, heavy to even begin to float again because of the uh, treasure on board. But there's also... Like, there's so many slaves, kidnapped victims. They've got, actually, they've got people here, man, which is what, mm. uh, like, uh, the pirates used to do. They used to, like, get an island, whack all of the slaves, all of the victims of their the, the plundering they've done that still had use to them. Then they'd leave them on the island, just fuck off, man. And then they might forget about them. They might come back really? and be like, oh, yeah, we've got some of these guys we could probably take somewhere and do something with kind of a thing, man. So Thomas and Hod stumble across this and are suddenly like, right. Okay, well, there's a couple of guards here for a start. Um, there's a big ship full of treasure, but there's a lot of people that we can't leave and they weigh uh, probably about as much mm. as the treasure does. Um so we got a little skirmish, and then we have the right. You guys have got to get on our ship, and you've got to get on there quickly because the dread, of course, has been on the tail of the peach for the last ever. And Hod's yeah. like, "Yeah, I'll go, man, but I'm not leaving before I blow the shit out of this ship. That's for fucking sure, because he ain't getting a penny of that, man. I didn't lose that <laughs> fucking lose, fight. I did not lose that and he's fucking like, fight. All right." Fair enough, that makes sense, man. Rig up the ship on the on the deck. We'll do that while we've got time, while we're loading the loading all of these people on board, man. Let's get it done, get it done, get it done. They've got the last of the people on. They are lighting the fuses. They've got, like, you know, your big long cannon fuse strapped together to give them enough time to, like, get the hell out. But as they go in, the dread is a lot closer than expected, man. It's starting to get... It's starting to... Uh, 
let loose its life rafts to come aboard, uh, to come to shore, sorry. Olcott Woodbean is, 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 <laughs> is absolutely front and centre. And then obviously we're dealing with fuses. The fuses don't work, Graham, of course. So of course, of course Hod, they don't work. I didn't lose that fucking fight. Someone's got to go back. Hod Calrain is getting straight back in there, man. He's <laughs> like, "I'll set it, you go." And Thomas is like, "I'm not gonna. Of course, I'm not gonna fucking go, man. But we've got to be quick." And then we have the confrontation uh, between Hod, um, between Thomas. Um, I think we can bring Ricketts back in here somehow. <laughs> I've forgotten Ricketts, man, who's mm-hmm. after his share of the deal as well. But what happens with Ricketts, he never gets involved in the final confrontation that is about to occur because we've got Alcott, we've got Thurburn and Quick against Hod and Thomas, man. And it's a fight on the beach beneath the ship itself. You see the smoke from the fuses is going and that's, that's like a constant companion for this end battle mm. where we see Hod, obviously, you <laughs> bastard! Nice. Oh, absolutely. Continuity nightmare for the end. <laughs> we've got Hod versus Quick and Thurburn. <laughs> He's up against the two and we've got Olcott and, uh, and Thomas uh, facing off against each other, man. And Hod manages to best Thurburn, uh, Quick, um, but Thurburn, it would appear, runs Hod through, man. Uh, and we see him, fuck! Uh, what? Drag out the uh, saber, and then it's Olcott versus Olcott and Thurban versus uh, poor Thomas Cutlerall, who has, I think, just lost his friend, as oh, well as the man. fact that the ship is very close to sort of completely going up now, man. But Thomas is not one to back down from adventure. He's not one to back down for a fight, and, and he fights, man, and he fights hard. And he takes out Olcott, man. He screams, runs him through, and he pins him to one of the barrels of gunpowder that is underneath the ship, man. Yes. And then we have Thomas and Thurban have to have their slugging out, man. But Thurban's a big dude. And he is getting the better of Thomas, who now doesn't have a cutlass to defend himself with, man. And he is wailing on him. Thomas trips back as he's trying to, like, he's trying also to excavate himself from where the explosion is going to be, kind of a thing. And he... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's just like and then he flips round and he just like and 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 yeah, Thurman yeah. just starts wailing on him horribly, like just pummeling, you know, left, right, his face is exploding blood. Poor Thomas, man, and he's about, to, and you can just see Thomas's hands are sort of like clawing at Thurburn's face. And they're barely even getting any kind of grip or anything. They're just sort of distorting his figures. And then we see behind him the figure of Hod wrench himself up from the bloodied mess that he was on the floor. He grabs Thurban by both hands around the neck, snaps it with the last of his strength, and then says, I didn't lose that fucking fight! And then bang, he's down, man. And Thomas and him make a limping last-ditch effort to get the hell out of um, the radius of the explosion into the jungle and get back to the peach if they can, man. And as they're doing this, um, the peach is Mm. like, is doing the the men on the beach are like we're not going to leave our captain behind so while this action scene is happening they're like right we're going around the side we're going to go around the side and we'll do our damn best to hoodwink the dread as much we can man and as the explosion rips the uh the 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 ship laden with goodies apart they time that perfectly with the surprise of the peach descending down onto the dread with all cannons that are remaining that weren't once destroyed, blazing, firing shot after shot until it too sinks next to the smouldering, broken ruins of the ship it was trying to protect. And as Thomas drags poor Hod back to the peach, it starts to rain doubloons on all of them. 
And Hod turns to Thomas <laughs> and says, well, it would seem God wants us to take one or two after all, Captain. And they fill their pockets as much as possible <laughs> and make their way onto the peach and sail away into the sunset. And that is the end of She's the Danger. Destination, Captain. How about home? How about, how about, how about England? Oh, that, that would suit me. That would suit me right well, Hod. Yeah. Uh, amazing. That might be the best one that you've done. It's certainly the one that I enjoyed the most, by which I mean I, was, I felt in my mind cinema that I was really, really there, like visually, um, I was really in it with the smoke and the disorientation of the, the battles, the stakes, the, the rich characters. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. If they still made them $150, $200 million. Yeah, and I want it like a propulsive chase movie. I want it like from get-go, just zip, and then bang, it's done. Big explosion, flipping out. What was that? That's kind of where I was pitching that, man. It's a big cast as well, which I quite like. I obviously you have got Hod, a big list for Hod everybody. Was like, it was immediately Sean Bean, so it was really hard. But I was also like, Idris Elba would be an yes. amazing quartermaster because he is so good at like yeah, bouncing off of people. He's just such a... F- and I, it's so strange because um, maybe a few years ago I wouldn't have necessarily said this about Idris Elba, man, but like I, everything I've seen him do... Uh, over the last like three years, there's been so much charm and charisma and warmth to his performances. Idris Elba is a great shout for Hod. I've got of you, and he is. It's kind of Sean Bean. <laughs> Obviously, it's Sean Bean. I've got two. Like before, we got the first thing I wrote down before we got into all this stuff that Hod does. Oh. I put Brendan Gleeson as a big l- lunk who's seen things yeah, and he's yeah, been yeah, on yeah. boats. He's got and... a good like sea stare. Um, and then my second yeah. one, as we got more into Hod and his kind of up for a ruck, fun, quite kind of charming, but still kind of charismatic and holds things together. Uh, Ken Ru- <laughs> uh, Kurt Russell. Ken Russell. I said Ken Russell. <laughs> kinky, kinky board. <laughs> kinky, kinky board. Kurt I mean, like, that, that's like, it's a buzzword, man. I, I'm, my mind's doing so many other things because you mm. said Kurt Russell, but I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> for Thomas... Cuttlethorpe. I've got Colin Farrell. It's slightly under, but then you can get like a Farrell like, Gleason like, double yeah, X yes, once obviously. more. Uh, I had, had Gail Garcia Bernal. I don't know. He sort of popped out as being like, I don't know why, man, but he just oh, popped really? out. You just 100%. want to see a bit of fancy out, show, girl. Come on, dudes. Um, Me too. <laughs> yeah, there was just something that I, I just like, too. I would like, he just, in my head fit well man and he's got like there's so much emotion um so much uh empathy as well he seems like there's a real sweetness to him that yeah do you know who else i've got for thomas cuttlethorpe which Uh is a bit of a well i can justify my reasoning afterwards it's a bit of a swing for the dashing daring do (laughs) i've got glenn (laughs) wow now absolutely uh, you know that i adore always sunny in philadelphia and I recently, I put, I probably should have mentioned it at the beginning of this episode. When I said well, I dude, seen uh, well, I recently watched the If I may Blackberry put a movie. minor pin in that for our next episode, and hey, listeners, here's a little tease for coming mm-hmm. up uh, next week. We will both uh, discuss Blackberry, man, mm. because I too have watched that, man. Let's definitely do that. We'll do a little mini. Wicked. We won't talk yep. about other things we watch. We'll just talk about Blackberry next week. But I will preface to go back to why I had chosen Glenn Harrington for this. He's astonishing in Blackberry. <clears throat> It's, he's fantastic. He is an absolute yeah. belter of an actor. 
But I really think, given the right material and the right footing, he can be <laughs> such a swashbuckling, yeah. charming, sweet, lovable, and really could get everyone on that boat and ready to All right, adventure Dave, one more time. I will take that because I also think that his hair would look fabulous, like tied back a little in a piratey fashion. Like I, and he's got oh, a really good face yes. for it. Again, he's got a wouldn't face that just... I can see in old paintings, if you know what I mean. Yes, wouldn't it just oh, it in the little oh, bone? Bit kind similar of to how you have your hair at the minute. It's beautiful. That brings us just on to one more thing about this film. Who uh, I had uh, Peter Weir, obviously, because of Master and Commander and the fact that he made that one of the most uh, like visceral kind of uh, movies of the genre. So it's hard not to be wistful for him, man. It uh, is also, I'll take um, Sergio Mimica Gazan and Tim Mielance, who helmed The Terror. Um, the first series of the terror because they uh, are fantastic at realizing the um, authenticity of the period they're looking at and they can also deal with like the whole nautical thing man as Mm. well as shooting it fantastically and knowing exactly how to film all of the tension and interpersonal drama and things like that that happen man and I think Mm. that they could make the step from TV into movies to do that because the terror was so damn uh, filmic anyway that's amazing I could imagine those guys um, would actually literally build the peach like it'll be a set that the camera can go all the uh, way I want that so much for this I don't want it to be the shiny pirates Caribbean thing I don't want CGI I, w- I want it to be as uh, gritty and nasty and like down in the dirt as possible kind of I don't want that to break the fourth wall because there wasn't CGI back then do you know what I mean I don't want you to be thinking about any of that yeah, uh, yeah. S- <laughs> um, off the top of my head I don't think it's proven themselves too much with all our action, but has proven themselves with detail, period, and um, mm-hmm. atmosphere, 100%. Uh, I've got for Frank Darrenbond. Blimey, okay, man, okay. The reason being, when you were describing the... When that had to be quiet in the mist, <laughs> and I, the because mist. my brain is very, very literal, literal. The mist, I was thinking the mist, but the, the, when the boat is nearby, the Corsica is very nearby and they're very, very quiet. And then suddenly out of nowhere, the fury of these, like you, you said yourself, they're like monsters coming from out of the abyss, like these, these cannibals and these um, chains yeah. and stuff that are just flying and just causing this absolute chaos. I think he would orchestrate the horror of that sequence. Camaraderie, really well. he'd be I perfect think he'd get at building for man. Camaraderie, he'd be great. He would. He would just get the yeah, period detail perfect and the um, this nice humanity, the grace notes, the yeah. fun, the little bits of humour that he just really nicely drops into films that have much more kind of like darkness or depth or, or um, you know despair to them. He just brings some levity here and there. Speaking of Darren, oh, does that mean we, we can oh, get Clancy oh. Brown as hot? Everyone just wants to be. Ah. <laughs> you just. Luke, ladies and gentlemen, is swirling <laughs> around in his chair again. like he's now on a... Yeah, I yeah, that's why, that's why I did the side to side thing, but then even I got dodgy. Um, my goodness, I, thing, I, like, I, I, would, I want... Um, I can't even speak, I'm that excited now. <sighs> Calm it, bring it back down, bring it back down. I would like to see Clancy <laughs> Brown in Calm so down. many... He's one of the actors that I'm just like, I want to see you in so many more things, and there are so many roles that you would be smashing that mm. I want people to employ you in, man, so... Mm. Yes, he can be hot a million percent. And Glenn Howerton and he, I think in my head at least, make an appealing, uh, like that That looks good, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I think, that, I think that does look good because um, Clancy Brown would just 
absolutely dwarf him, <laughs> but would be so tender. Fiery, and Glenn would man. be so vivacious <laughs> and, char- and fiery and charismatic that he would like they would balance each All other right, out. Man, yeah, I think totally it would work really yeah, nicely. Yeah, okay, actually. cool. We got a last minute recast, dude. I like that, man. Um, yeah, and I think, man, that. Excellent. There we go. That wraps us up. That, but that was the the, the pitch is done. That was uh, she's the danger, man. The right. pitch is done. Amazing. Well, I guess that leads us. That we've been running I think we on. I guess that leads man. us to choosing. Where should we go? Where should we go next week? Do you reckon we should? Do you go somewhere special? Well, somewhere posh? I think it's this week. I think we're somewhere special, somewhere posh, because this week, at the time of recording, oh, well, bring me my fascinator. I will bring you your fascinator, and I think we should go to Ascot to 5.35 for the Golden Gate Stakes Handicap. Now, the good thing about this race is that there are... There are a lot of horses going here, man. That is an enthusiastic amount of horses, if ever I saw them. I have spied uh, for you, sorry, I I, I offer you uh, to shout out, and I snatched that offer away immediately. What a bastard. Uh, I spied for you, uh, bastard. You bastard. (laughs) Liberty Lane for you, sir, out of that fine... Fine list of horses. You're very welcome, man. Liberty Lane, thank no you so much. All, I will man. dig deep and have a think about that. There is, yeah. We'll um, a, yeah oh, there's quite coach. a lot in here. It's really good. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this horse. I'm oh, gonna give you, you toilet. Lose your wad. <laughs> oh my god. Lose your wad. Now that's either gonna come back. Ray Winston, Nick Love, Gangster Schlock, which I am. 100% Or something else will come from that. Oh, That's a good old name for me to get the teeth really into, different. man. All right, dude, I appreciate that very much, man. Lose my words. Don't lose my words. Lose your, your words. Word. That's the one I'm after. Okay, man, no worries at all. Dude, mm. thank you very much. <laughs> and um, again, thank you so much for the pitch. Um, thank you, guys, uh, for listening. And I hope mm. that your mind cinemas have uh, had some absolute treats uh, projected onto their screens over the last uh, hour or so. And thank you very much for joining our whimsy. Thank you so much indeed. I know my mind cinema has had a lovely rollicking ride. It's been great. And thank you for your time with me. And I guess we just need to say goodbye and see you next time. Well, there we have it. Another episode of Racehorse Movies is over both hope you had as much fun listening as we did coming up with these films and recording our pitches. If you enjoyed this, please share it around with your friends and loved ones. If it wasn't your thing, I don't know, maybe share it with someone you miffed with. Who knows? If it's not for them either, maybe you two can build some bridges over that connection. But if you did like picking up what we put down and you fancy checking out some more content from us, then head over to theneverpress.com to take a gander at our novels, poetry and other bits and bobs. Anyway, that's about enough from us. Hope to have you back next time for some friendly chats and barely thought through pitches at Racehorse Movies. Ta-ta! Bye.